Hello and welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. My guest this time is Caroline Noakes. Caroline is a Member of Parliament for Romsey in Southampton North and the current Chair of the Women and Equality Select Committee in Parliament. Since her election in 2010, she has served as a Minister in the Department for Work and Pensions, the Cabinet Office and was Minister of State for Immigration in Theresa May's Cabinet. Immediately prior to becoming an MP, she was the chief exec of an animal welfare charity, and she's also currently the co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group for Muslim women and vice-chair of Show Racism the Red Card. Welcome to the podcast, Caroline. Hi, Emma, and it's great to be here. So let's dive on in and talk about menopause in the workplace. So the Select Committee put their report findings in, in July 2022, and the government response came out a little earlier this year, so end of January. There's There's been a lot of press, obviously, coverage of their response and the things that they have not accepted from, from the report. Is there, if you could sort of single out one in particular, is there is there something that you're particularly disappointed about in, in that response? I think it's very hard to single out one single thing, but it was the overwhelming negativity that actually really offended me. And the fact that the government received that report in July 22, should have responded to it by October 22, didn't actually respond to it until the end of January 23. So it was late, dismissive, I'm very conscious that ministers appear not to have either read or understood some of the recommendations, mm. and it just came across as the response of a government that doesn't get it. One thing particular to to pick out, perhaps that I think I know a lot of people were disappointed about that that I've been hearing about is is around the mandatory training for GPs and the rejection around that. I think the report said states that the menopause is already a core competency of all qualified GPs. But we hear over and over again that the women are being given incorrect information, turned away, told they're too young or too old or too overweight or, or that they're prescribed antidepressants when that's not really the, the sort of, the, you know, the first line treatment. And so, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of us find that that very puzzling as a response. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I think that that one is worth singling out. I think there was also some narrative around we do use the term clinical commissioning groups, because guess what? We did it in July last year, uh, now replaced by the integrated care boards. And there was one sort of comment, well, the CCGs no longer exist. Well, they did when we wrote the report. And I think the point about GPs is so important. I know that many women will have had very different experiences with their doctors than the one that I had. And I know how lucky I am that my practice is sufficiently forward thinking to have a menopause specialist nurse in there who tells me all of her woes about the increase in workload as women are understanding the benefits of HRT, understanding the weird symptoms that they had may well be to do with the menopause. But other practices don't have the same and may have predominantly male doctors who trained one or two years ago, to put it bluntly. And I just think some of the suggestions that we made to government were really practical, could have made a big difference to women's lives and could have made a more uniform experience. Better training, I don't think, is that radical. I speak to so many consultants, clinicians, GPs, anybody in the health service will make the point that they did their training years ago and that it was 
fairly rushed on a wide range of issues. And I don't think that that's telling tales outside school. They have frustrations at the way medical students get a limited amount of time, inevitably, on individual body parts, conditions, whatever. And it just strikes me that women's health is such a massive issue that has been neglected for years that a little bit more positivity from the government when it came to our suggestions wouldn't have gone amiss. Ideally, we would like everyone to to be able to access the same levels of, of care and support. And I think uh, there were some, some interesting statistics came out recently about the difference in terms of spending on HRT in different areas in terms of those that are areas that are more sociologically deprived, the spending is is way, way less. So, And I constantly get frustrated by colleagues, and colleagues are capable of doing it, saying that the menopause is an obsession for middle-class women. Well, no, actually, the menopause is something that impacts every woman. will go through it at some time or other in their lives. Some will be very blessed and have very few symptoms, and others will have an absolutely miserable time. And... That's why Carolyn Harris and I have been relentlessly calling for a national formulary so that we see um, an evening out of the availability of products. So, for example, and I tell people this relentlessly and everybody is bored with my menopause journey. But if I wish to be prescribed testosterone, I can't be because I go to a doctor's in Wiltshire. Yet if I went to a doctor's in Hampshire, a full three miles up the road from the one I actually go to, then I could be prescribed testosterone for some of my more frustrating menopause symptoms. And it's the sheer inconsistency and the fact, and I mean, Carolyn has been a relentless campaigner and a brilliant woman, but it's taken us 18 months from her private member's bill being passed before the government introduces its prepayment certificate for HRT. And the stark reality is, in a cost of living crisis, there have been women over the last year who have been choosing not to fulfil their prescriptions for HRT because they can't afford it, thus Mm. turning it into a privilege for us middle classes to be able to access HRT because we can afford that £18 every three months and we're going to because we know the difference that it makes. But if you're struggling with choices about whether your kids are going to get new school shoes or whether you're going to be able to heat your accommodation to the temperature that you would like, then actually... That 18 quid on HRT seems like a luxury and women have chosen to go without it. For some, that will be an absolutely horrendous struggle. Mm. And not not just access to, to HRT itself, but we, you know, we also hear about people who, who really can't afford it, who are paying to get private medical advice and, and support. Because again, you know, the, the, the support that they should be getting from their GP just isn't there. And they find that the only way that they can actually get help for themselves is, is to somehow find the money or put it on a credit card to, to go and see a private specialist. So I think it's absolutely worth reflecting that there is free information out there on the internet, but you have to be choosy about where you get it. So I always say organisations like Positivity, Wellbeing of Women, you know, provide some great resources on the menopause. But the stark reality is exactly as you have described it, that private practitioners who are sometimes charging in the region of 250 quid for a 15-minute Zoom consultation, are are incredibly popular, are doing very well out of the crisis that we have in the NHS's ability through local GP surgeries to accurately diagnose, to listen, to take the time to understand that the symptoms that they're being 
described are not necessarily depression or anxiety, uh, but in fact a perfectly normal and indeed expected part of the menopause. And I do think that a bit more training for GPs would have been a fantastic idea and that the government, if they wanted to demonstrate their commitment to the women's health strategy, might have positively championed it. So one of my recent guests on here actually was was Sarah Graham, who wrote Rebel Bodies about the, the gender health gap. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet. It's an excellent book. So we were we were inquiring <laughs> on Instagram whether whether we could actually put a copy on the desk of uh, of Steve Barkley, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. So I, I don't know how easy it is to... Uh, <laughs> to, to slip that into their uh, to their intray, but um, I would very happily buy him a copy. I was going to say relatively easy and uh, perfectly possible for me to slip him a copy in the lobby when we're voting. And I just think that it is one of those challenges. And I would say that, wouldn't I? As to why you need to have female ministers at the top of government. It's why you need to make sure that attention, adequate attention, is paid to female conditions as well as male conditions. It's why I get very nervous that the women's health strategy becomes a paper document and not a living, breathing plan as to how you iron out some of those health inequalities that undoubtedly exist. And I, maybe I shouldn't look at everything through a gendered lens, But I just think it is so crucially important that we make sure that the experience of women through a whole range of health conditions is is listened to and is understood and acted upon. The funding clearly needs to be there. It's all very nice to say, well, we'd like, you know, we aim to do this and and our our goal is to do that. But if there's no funding at the end of the day to to actually put weight behind that, that's all just hopes and dreams and... and, um and not concrete accountability. And I think what is very interesting is the appointment of Dame Leslie Regan, who I think is an absolute legend as Women's Health Ambassador. I think a phenomenal appointment, but she has to be given the tools in order to be able to do the job. She has to be resourced. She has to be able to set priorities and, and the government to deliver upon them for her. And I couldn't think of anybody better qualified to do it but the stark reality is is that you know we we must be prepared to judge the women's health strategy in the next you know three to five year period as to what is actually achieved let's have a look at some key metrics and see whether it's done anything what's changed let's let's come back to the topic of hrt for a second because uh despite maria caulfield claiming on social media that there are no shortages we know that there definitely are. We've, we, you know, we know that people are driving dozens of, or if not hundreds of miles to to fill their prescriptions, or in some cases they're being told that the, you know, the actual dosages that have been prescribed uh, are out of stock until say September. So what? Why is why is there this kind of mismatch in understanding? Is it just that the the kind of information isn't getting through to the right quarters? So I think this is worth unpacking in some detail. Firstly, I know from pharmacists that they are spending hours every single week trying to access supplies. The problem is not in the pharmacies. The problem is in getting supplies to the pharmacies. Mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, I look at the information that I've had from suppliers regarding the roundtables that the minister does with those in the industry who are preparing for the prepayment certificate to come in from the beginning of April. 
and have had precious little information from government as to what the projections are of how that might increase demand. I suspect it will significantly increase demand because there will suddenly be a raft of women who, instead of paying 20 quid every three months, will be looking at paying £18 once a year. They will be able to afford their HRT. And I think that's crucially important. And yet I know that successive meetings with uh, industry have been postponed. And certainly some of the leading suppliers have said to me, we have no clue what's happening. We learned that the prepayment certificate was definitely going ahead in April on social media. We didn't hear direct from the government. We need to have more information. We know from women. Well, it is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. If you're going to introduce a significant change like that, which may hugely impact demand, hugely see an increase in demand, you have to be ready for it. Or we're back to where we were this time last year with the serious shortage protocols. We've all got our £18 prepayment certificate. We're waving it at the pharmacist, but we can't have the drugs. This is a, uh, to put it delicately, a suboptimal position to be in. (laughs) So my one message to Maria Caulfield, talk to industry, talk to them about how they're increasing supply. Uh, Give them whatever information you have about the projected increase in demand, because they need to have some sort of certainty as to what they can expect to be dealing with. I imagine they would, they, you know, they're, they're operating on, on a sort of just-in-time type system, so can't just suddenly ramp it up with a couple of days' notice. I'm sure they'd like to be making more money, but they need that information in order to be able to, to plan strategically. And the stark reality of the suppliers is that these are private businesses. They can see that an increase in demand is coming. They are prepared to invest in additional mm. manufacturing capability in order to meet that. So they'll put their money on the table. However... They need to know to what extent. They need to know timescales. And as you say, you cannot switch on uh, manufacturing overnight. And so that makes me very frustrated that there hasn't been better dialogue between uh, the Department of Health and Social Care and industry. I think what we know from women, and we saw last year, I think it was in the region of 13 products affected by the serious shortage protocols. Some of them still are. And we know that at the moment there is a particular problem with the Estradot patches. Um, And I think last year the big challenge was around Estragel, and many of us were plonked onto Sandrina as a substitute for that. I gather there are now shortages with Sandrina, although I haven't, and I ought to touch wood, I haven't heard about shortages with Estragel. I think Eutrogestan as well, having some issues in some places, yeah. Yes, although I probably didn't ought to confess, I'm never quite sure that I take Eutrogestan properly. Um, and certainly not on time ever. But yeah, there are. So there's a whole range of products on which there are shortages, undoubtedly. But I'm really only hearing that anecdotally from women. And certainly the message from the government is there are no shortages, but pharmacists tell us that there are shortages. Um, and you sort of go around in this endless circle of, well, look, I want my constituents and indeed 51% of the population to know that they can be confident about getting access to the drugs that they need as and when that they need them. And at the moment, I simply don't feel that we're in that situation. The HRT czar, Maddie McTurnan, sure, she was great, but she was only on the job for a few months before she was sent back to vaccines. And we know that the menopause task force has not met very often. We know that the government roundtables with industry are being postponed and not going ahead. And it just smacks of where are our priorities and our priorities are not with women and that's how it feels to me and that makes me pretty angry 
let's move on then to to one of the other areas that your report touched on, which was around um, sort of specific legislation protecting women in the workplace. The recommendation was to make menopause a protected characteristic, uh, or at least to be able to combine together the the sort of the elements under the the act that would enable sort of intersectional claims to be to be recognised, and that was turned down. I think on the basis that it could discriminate towards men suffering from long-term medical conditions, which seems rather mealy-mouthed reason to me. But um, I mean, it's obviously it's a very complex area, and changing that legislation would would take a long time and, and potentially create a lot of additional work for, for employers. But can you talk a bit about what it was within the the sort of the research that you were doing that that made you make that recommendation? So there are are two very distinct recommendations and and they are complex. And I think the government Mm. is right to be wary of huge legislative change. So the first recommendation, and this was the one that I found most disappointing probably, was that we were asking, not that the government make menopause a protected characteristic, but the government consult on making menopause a protected characteristic. And I absolutely accept that this is a hugely complicated area of the law and it had the potential to negatively impact women. The last thing I want to do is see a change in legislation that gives employers a reluctance to employ women over 40 as a ballpark figure. We all agree that we want more experienced, talented women at the top of their game to stay in work, to be able to move into new jobs and that there shouldn't be bars to that. So the last thing I wanted was something that would deter employers. However, the stark reality is is that there are a range of protected characteristics, which it is already uh, illegal to discriminate against people because of them, including maternity. Now, we will recognise that maternity, like the menopause, is a temporary state of being. You go through the menopause, For some women, it may last for years and years, and that's horrendous. But for others, it could be relatively quick, and some may have no symptoms whatsoever. Um, But to suggest that you couldn't bring in a protected characteristic around the menopause because this could potentially discriminate against men with long-term health conditions, well, you could use that same argument against bringing in maternity protections or having maternity protections. And yet we're prepared. Which is something to that people choose in the main. Absolutely. <laughs> they don't choose to go through menopause. And we know that, don't we? That every woman will go through the menopause, not every woman will get pregnant. And so it just struck me as a, a ludicrous argument to use against even being prepared to consider menopause as a protected characteristic. The second recommendation in that area which potentially does have some negative ramifications. And I'm very happy to sit down any time with government ministers and go through the evidence that we took as part of our inquiry. Is look, the Equalities Act already has contained within it Section 14. It's not been enacted, but it's there. And Section 14 would allow you to bring a discrimination claim using two protected characteristics. So in this instance, it's going to be sex and age. Uh, and that would so make you good. can't do that now. You can only do it on yeah. one characteristic. You can only do it on one characteristic at the moment. Section 14, if enacted, would enable you to bring it on two characteristics. And my sense was we have this ridiculous situation at the moment where women who are bringing claims against employers because of the menopause 
are by and large doing it on disability grounds because sex isn't cutting it, age isn't cutting it, ah, but disability might. So their lawyers are suggesting to them, recommending to them that they do it on disability discrimination grounds. Mm. So effectively, we have those women who are brave enough to bring claims, and there are a precious few of them because it's so difficult, and you're going through a hideous time in your life anyway, and you're suffering from anxiety and a lack of confidence, and why on earth would you want to put yourself through a tribunal? But those women who are brave enough to do it are almost invariably using disability discrimination. Now, look, the menopause is many things. It is not a disability. And that offends me that women are forced into a situation where they are using disability discrimination. And if they were able to use a dual characteristic. Now, look, there are there absolutely are complications around that. And so you could then see people bringing discrimination claims using a whole raft of protected characteristics. But my my question there is, is that a bad thing? Is it a bad thing that somebody can bring a claim against their employer because they were discriminated against because they were, for example, both black and gay? Well, actually, what is the harm in that? And if someone can point out to me what the harm in that is, then I'm very happy to have that conversation. But it just struck me is ministers rejected that out of hand. Yet we know when the act was originally drafted that it, that provision was put there in it that could have been enacted at any time so so why did they include it then to reject it now on what seems to be fairly spurious ground the government response also pointed out that they would be appointing a menopause employment champion i don't think that person has has yet been appointed but what would you in particular like to see them focus on in terms of the workplace so this is one of the areas in which i actually feel more positive than many others uh, and that's largely being driven by uh, Mims Davis, a minister at the DWP, who who gets this. But what I want to see a menopause workplace champion. So look, there's a whole raft of recommendations that were not accepted that actually any menopause ambassador, workplace ambassador could champion themselves. And I would say, why will the government through Bayes not produce a template workplace menopause policy that any employer can download, digest, implement? Why should it be down to brilliant organisations like Wellbeing of Women to have to drive that work? Why are we not prepared to have a look at things like menopause workplace leave? Why are we not prepared to just trial that, see if it could work in a big public sector employer? I think there would be real merit to that. And the DWP has come out with some information about this in the last week or so, some work on returners. So people who leave work because of their menopause symptoms, actually, we need to find paths back for them that are really simple and straightforward and give them the confidence to do so. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that many people don't understand around the menopause is that it undermines people's confidence. It undermines women's enthusiasm to take promotions. They don't feel that they're up to it. They compare themselves to their peers and they feel like they come up wanting. So actually, let's look at ways in which we can, either through retraining or through some, dare I say it, positive discrimination, look at routes back into the workplace for women who may have left work for whatever reason. It's a really tough employment market if you're over 40 double that if you're a woman over 40. And so I think my big push to the DWP has consistently been 
look, you've got some great initiatives, your kickstart initiative, some schemes around green jobs and retraining opportunities. Why don't you set aside some of those for women? It's always the sharp elbow, 24 year old white bloke that gets himself to the front of the queue. And I think that the DWP would do well to reflect on the recommendations put forward by the Treasury about, you know, let's find some innovative ways to get the over 50s back to work. Well, let's look at some innovative ways to keep the over 50s in work as well. And let's not forget that 51% of them are women. I mean, that was perhaps one of the criticisms levelled at the, the sort of the menopause leave trial suggestion was that it, you know, it would further stigmatise menopause in the workplace potentially but for all that I you know your suggestion was that that it it could be a pilot we weren't sort of suddenly going to mandate it for every single company up and down the land it would have been really interesting to see what the results of that would be in terms of retention of you know skilled and, and valued employees and and that's my view all along you know try things see if they work they might not work workplace menopause leave could be a disaster but if you've trialled it, you at least know that. And I think there are a sort of a, a range of perspectives on that. And I saw the minister in a WhatsApp group make a comment along the lines of, I don't want women to have to leave work because of the menopause. No, that's the whole point of trialling menopause workplace leave. It's temporary. Nobody's going to force you to take it. But if you want to take it, it's there and it could help. And it's a bit like some of the um, discussions around flexible working. Look, I'm not saying that everybody should work flexibly, but we should put in place provisions through an employment bill that give people a greater ability to be more flexible. If we learn anything from COVID, it should be that we can work in a very different way because we were forced to. And when you come through an experience like COVID, hideous and negative though it was, at least learn things from it. Learn what you can do differently going forward. And that was my mission around workplace menopause leave. Find a big public sector employer that employs lots of women. Oh, I don't know. The NHS is quite a good example. And just do a pilot. See whether women want this. They might not. See whether it works. It might. See whether it enables people to take a a short break from work and come back having got through the worst of their symptoms. And I don't think that that was an unreasonable ask. And it was very upsetting to see ministers trying to spin that as me trying to force women out of the workplace. Perhaps that's a challenge then to some more forward thinking companies in the private sector as to to whether they might might be the ones to put their hands up and, and to, to give us the trial and see what, what happens. Because we know already that people are much more now considering their choices of of employer basically on on a kind of a whole benefits package so not just on the salary but you know how what what is the performance of that employer on the sort of the well-being side of things are they just paying lip service to things like uh, you know supporting people of of menopause or age or are they actually doing stuff that is going to make a a real difference to people so yeah I, I would hope anyway that in the same way that we've seen companies embrace training in the workplace and policies uh, that, that they might well go that sort of next step on and, and trial some kind of pilot like this. Well, I hope so. And I think some of the interesting work that I've done over the course of the last year has involved some really unexpected employers who uh, you wouldn't think would be embracing 
their workplace menopause policy. I think the highlight for me was going off to Milton Keynes and talking to Scania, the truck manufacturer, <laughs> and really enlightened and really positive. And their MD came and sat in on a session I did with their female employees. And he said to me at the end, he said, it matters to me that I'm seen to be leading from the front and that I'm seen to be supporting my female workforce. Uh, you know, we, we could do with some government ministers taking that same view. Fantastic. And and also, but you know, it does, it impacts on male and, and non-binary employees as well. It's not just women in the workplace. You know, we, we hear a lot of talk about bringing your whole self to work, right? If your spouse is, is having a really, really tough menopause and your relationship is suffering uh, as a result of that, then even if they're not in that workplace with you, you're still bringing all of that uh, emotional baggage and, and potentially to disruption into your workplace. So I think more and more we're seeing companies recognise that men really want to learn about this too. And I've been struck as to how many men want to have the conversation with me. And as I say, you know, every man has a partner a mother a sister an employer an employee a colleague and it's important that they learn about it it's, I mean it's crucial that we should be teaching it better in schools and instead of fixating on teaching teenage girls how not to get pregnant also tell them that there will come a time in your life when you can't anymore and how are you going to deal with that well certainly yeah I think the in the work that I I've been doing it's very often a surprise to to people the amount of people who will go into early menopause for example and I think we kind of blithely go through life trying very hard not to get pregnant at sometimes and trying very hard to get pregnant at other times and then we don't necessarily think that early menopause might be something that that could happen to us and sadly for sort of one in a hundred that that is exactly what will happen and and I think for them in particular that can be uh, even harder to to access the right support the right information and so yeah the more that we can do to to raise awareness so that people can sort of spot the early warning signs or whatever or kind of join the dots in terms of what's going on for them health-wise the better and it's something that I always make sure that I do um and I'm perhaps not great at it is that when we talk about the menopause almost invariably I lapse into talking about the over 40s the over 50s and over the course of the last couple of years, it's the women in their 20s and 30s who've gone through early menopause, who have had the most heartbreaking stories and have found it hardest to be correctly diagnosed, to get the support that they need because people look at them and go, no, 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 it can't be that, you're only 29. Um, well, it can be. Um, and that's the stark truth is that we, uh, and I, you know, and I hate to load it all onto women, but actually we as women don't even have conversations about menopause. So when it creeps up on us, we don't know what to expect because you know what, we've not talked to our friends about it. And mm -hmm. part of it has to be about making it normal to have the conversation, making it absolutely normal. And a lot of us go through huge stages of denial. We don't want to talk about it because that means I'm old. That means I'm aging and I'm indestructible and I do not age. Um, and the stark reality is, is that in order to break down the stigma and the taboo, you have to be prepared to talk about it. You have to be willing to put your symptoms out there so that maybe one other woman goes oh hang on a moment that could just be it I mean all of my staff have to listen to me endlessly talking about itching itchy legs uh and um <laughs> so when one of them said to me you know I'm really itching and I went it's it's that's it that's it and she went yes well, I just wonder if it might be because you know all I ever hear you do is talk about itchy legs but that's the start reality is that it wasn't until I was on 
some sort of Zoom conference with a bunch of menopausal women and somebody started talking about itchy legs. I went, oh God, that I have that. And then sent a text message to Leslie Regan. I mean, I'm lucky I have privileged access and go, is itchy legs a symptom of the <laughs> perks menopause? Of the job. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely perks the job. And she came out to me and said, yes, Caroline, <laughs> it is. Mm. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your busy schedule. Where next for the menopause conversation as far as you're concerned? Will you still be very much involved? Yeah, you know, um, I've loved I've loved my work on the menopause. It's given me a massive support group of the most incredible women that I've ever met. And and I feel like we haven't made progress. And maybe that's a bit unfair um, because you know, there's now over 2000 companies signed up to the Wellbeing of Women Workplace Menopause Pledge. The taboos are slowly coming down. We're beginning to talk about it more. There is wider understanding. Mm. But for me, it feels like a job undone, not finished. Um, and change so, takes time yeah but I'm a 50 year old woman in a hurry and I find that really frustrating I don't have any <laughs> patience anymore and so we're not going to go away on this and certainly there will be ministers summoned back in front of my committee to account for their views and um, a long way to go yet well between the menopause warriors uh, inside parliament and the menopause warriors outside as you say you know we, we've still got work to do so thank you for all that you've been doing uh, with your good colleagues on the on the committee You've been listening to the Middling Along podcast. Do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live. And why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.